Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have Kevin Erdman with me. Kevin uh, was a small business owner for 17 years. And then in 2010, he sold his business, earned his master's degree in finance from the University of Arizona, which allowed him to get grounded in a real world experience of investing within the rigor of the academy. And since 2013, he has blogged about his contrarian observations on investment strategies and research. He lives in Arizona, and he and I connected through a mutual connection at the uh, Mercatus Institute. So, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Maybe start with a little bit on the background on yourself, what that small business was, what that journey looked like, and what eventually led you to go back to school and then we'll kind of pick it up from there. Yeah, it was it was actually in the contracting uh, sector. I just had a little, a very small signage subcontracting business. So I, you know, I put letters on fire stations and that sort of thing, um, signs in school buildings and, and, and things. And so I had just sort of, you know, become exhausted by it and was ready for a career change. And so I sold that back in 2010 and went back to school then in finance. I had been, you know, managing just, family and personal assets during that time and and had good results from that. And so I wanted to sort of follow up on that. So I went to school and got got the degree. And it was really just doing private research in, you know, for the sake of managing personal assets that actually pulled me into what has become a a policy focus on in the housing market. Uh, And it was really just, you know, I was looking at, say, home builders as an investment class and, and was trying to figure out what was keeping them back from recovery, you know, years after the crisis. 
And so I was, you know, just looking at, okay, we know the pendulum swung way too far in one direction. And so I'm trying to figure out how far has it swung in the other direction and sort of what, what's the scale of, you know, the sort of growth expectations I might have for home builders. And in the process of doing that, I just kept running across macro data that just didn't uh, match the conventional wisdom about what happened during the housing bubble at all. So it, as, as often as not, it told the opposite story. And instead of treating each of those things as an outlier and sort of forgetting about it and, and moving on and finding things that match um, conventional wisdom, I just kept following my nose down the path. Well, well, if that's true, what, then what does the, what would I expect this thing to show? And and as I kept going down the path, everything kept confirming to me that conventional wisdom ha has been very wrong about what happened during the bubble. And and so I sort of you know just for personal reasons came into the subject and by the time I was done with it it was such a compelling uh, new story that I that I felt like it it demanded my attention and, and so eventually the the book shut out I, I eventually published the book and now for the last couple of years the Mercatus Center has been uh, supporting the research and I've been a visiting fellow there and and the research continues and and you know we just keep going so for those listening, the book who uh, you were kind enough to send me a complimentary copy. So thank you. It's called shut out how a housing shortage caused the great recession and crippled our economy. Before we get into the book, which is where we're going to spend you know, the bulk of our time, talk a little bit about the Mercatus center, how you found your way there, the work that they do. That was our initial introduction, which is so funny how the world works. A friend of mine at the Vanderbilt endowment, his son has, has, it works with you all, I think, through George Mason University. But maybe tell the listeners a little bit about what that center does and, and your specific focus within the group. Yeah, so the Mercatus Center, I mean, they've got their fingers in a lot of uh, in a lot of issue areas. You know, there's sort of a focus on markets and, and how to use markets to make the to make the country a better place. And and you know, so there, there's sort of a there's a monetary policy uh, group uh, within the center. There's a Financial regulations and the capital markets, uh, a group on housing policy, all you know, all sorts of different facets that they look at. And Tyler Cowan is the is the director of, of the Mercatus Center. And you know, just back you know back when this all started, before like I started researching this in probably late 2015, and I had just I had had informal interactions with Tyler just through his blog, he and, and Alex Tabrock blog at uh, marginalrevolution.com, which is, uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with. It's a pretty uh, popular uh, economics blog. Uh, and also Scott Sumner is another economist that, that's at the Mercatus Center now that I had had uh, informal interactions with him just through, you know, back then when everyone was blogging. And it, again, sort of like like us sort of coming together by accident. Some of the people that had been reading my research specifically, you know, sort of had connections at Mercatus and and sort of encouraged them to take a look at it and support it. And so the combination of sort of having had some familiarity with them and and them sort of getting some encouragement, you know, new encouragement led them to go ahead and first support the book and then support uh, continue, continuing research as a visiting fellow. So I originally came in in the monetary policy group uh, with Scott Sumner and it, because really what sort of what allowed me to sort of um, look outside the, the box in terms of thinking differently about the uh, financial crisis was Scott Sumner in the market. He, he's sort of a member of what you would call the market monetarists, which are a, a group of economists that says the Federal Reserve should really focus on 
very stable nominal income growth and not, you know, not worry about all these sort of secondary factors like inflation rates and unemployment and, and interest rates. Just let's just grow incomes 5% a year and make that the focus. It's just a much easier, much more coherent way to think about um, uh, monetary policy, in my opinion, and, and in their opinion. And their way of looking at it, it sort of leads to a conclusion that, you know, maybe the crisis was created by Fed policy more than it was created by this sort of inevitable housing boom and bust. And so sort of having that uh, in the background sort of helps me to go, you know, you know, help me to sort of change the presumptions I was using to analyze the, the crisis myself. Uh, so I, I came in originally as part of the monetary policy group, but now I'm part of what they call the urbanity group, whose focus is more on getting rid of uh, onerous zoning regulations and, um, and land use policy that prevents housing from being built uh, in you know, key urban areas. So I really, really feel like my work brings together the monetary policy issue, the urbanity groups uh, issues, and the uh, financial regulation groups issues, that everything I do ends up sort of having, having a, a, a leg in all three of those because, all, you know, looking at the financial crisis the way I do, everything depends on those three things interacting together and how we've managed them through the, through the recession. So timing is everything. It's so funny how this works. Before we got connected, I had rewatched The, the Big Short, which is one of my favorite <laughs> movies. It's a terrific movie and I'm, there's a lot of Hollywood to it, right? But it's entertaining and it's probably an oversimplification, but I'm 38. So I was in law school uh, when the Great Recession occurred. So I was not in the game as a market participant, but, but obviously kind of experienced it as a professional. And it seems like the Wall Street narrative or, or what we've taken away from it is easy credit, you know, free credit, loose policy, and Wall Street kind of fat cats making a lot of money on, you know, the lower middle market folks. And meanwhile, you had a political regime that was pushing home ownership as fulfilling the American dream, which all led to disaster and, and you know, terrible things. But your assertion and your research really puts that on its head. And you assert that there was never an oversupply of home, that that wasn't the issue. Yeah. Could you dig into a little bit of that? Yeah, yeah. And actually, the big short is a great uh, sort of reference point to start the conversation with. In fact, I have, I have a book where hope, a follow-up book, which focuses a lot more on sort of the timeline of what happened through the crisis uh, that we hope to have out this year. And, and I referenced the big short a few times in that book. And the way I sort of address it in the book is that that movie is maybe two hours and 10 minutes long. And the last two hours and five minutes are, I, I, I wouldn't challenge any factual things that happened in the last two hours and five minutes of that, uh, of that movie. And in fact, this is very common in all of the literature about the, the uh, financial crisis is that they all have tons and tons of details of things that were happening in 2006 and 2007 that, you know, that generally are accurately be, uh, portrayed. The problem is the housing, quote, the supposed housing bubble ended at the end of 2005. So nobody actually talks about, you know, nobody, nobody has more than two pages or three minutes of a movie or whatever that actually deals with the thing that they claim made all of this stuff inevitable. Um, so what happens in the first 
three or four minutes of, of the big short is a very brief citation of the original sort of private mortgage securities that were developed in the 1980s. And then, you know, pictures of bankers throwing money around and, and, you know, partying, partying and whatnot and, and, uh, fast frame images of, uh, skyscrapers being built and all this, right? And then, and then it basically has sort of a, a voiceover of, and, and inevitably after all of this, you know, 25 years of excess, 2008 came. Really what I'm challenging is the inevitability of it. And the base of that challenge is that all those skyscrapers they see the show going up very fast. We're, we were actually building at very low rates in the late 80s and the 1990s, uh, the lowest rates we've built since we've been keeping data, right? It was getting harder and harder to build those skyscrapers, and it was getting harder and harder to build single-family homes. So um, there, wasn't, there just wasn't 25 years of excess. So the premise of what happened after 2005 is, it, uh, is wrong. All of the details about what happened in 2006 and 2007 can be right. They're just built on a false premise of, of excess. There was a brief period of things happening in mortgage markets that did induce some, you know, create some, some more demand for home buying. But that was piled on what was actually a 20-year period of deprivation, of, of you know, regulatory obstruction to letting that money flow into a place where somebody could actually use it to build a house. Uh, and so changing that premise is what sort of turns all, you know, all the facts remain the same, uh, but the but the premise that they were inevitable is what changes. And and instead of letting it happen and feeling like it had to happen, uh, beginning in two thousand six and seven, we should have been uh, trying to avoid it. The the premise is that there was actually a shortage of homes, especially in these increasingly expensive coastal metros, and that was what fundamentally led to this transition for a lot of folks into other markets. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's really, I'd say you could sort of divide the country into three sections. Most of the country, you know, if you got, if you, if we got rid of, of the coastal met metropolises. So I, one of the terms I use is closed access cities, Boston, New York city, LA, San Francisco and San Diego and, and San Jose, obviously is part of that. So the, those half a dozen metropolitan areas are very different than the rest of the country. And at its base, the, the, the main thing that makes them different is that they allow housing permits. They, they permit new housing at a much lower rate than any other metropolitan area. D during that bubble time, they were even permitting housing at, at rates lower than, say, a place like Detroit or Cleveland, where they're having a depopulation issue. Uh, and, that, and then that drives a whole bunch of other factors that make them different than the rest of the country. So there, there's those cities and then there's most of the country where if you got rid of the data from those cities and the data from places like Florida and Arizona and Nevada, most of the country, like Nashville, we wouldn't have even been talking about a housing bubble. It would have just been, it was just a normal market. Prices were slightly elevated because of low interest rates and, and you know, fundamentals were driving the market more or less. So you have most of the, most of the country that was just experiencing a very moderate increase in, in demand for housing that shouldn't be disruptive at, in any way at all. Then you have the closed access cities, which were also experiencing a, a moderate increase in housing demand that shouldn't be disruptive at all. But because they've clamped down on the, on the ability to grow in, in terms of population, right? Every year, even, even when mortgage markets are cool, every year, Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of households have to move out of those cities because they're not building enough 
housing, even for just normal population growth. And so those cities also in the mid 2000s had a very moderate increase in housing demand. And that became very disruptive because they created this closed access issue where they won't build housing to meet even a moderate amount of demand. Because that, because of that issue, there was a migration of in out of those cities. Uh, households now flooding in to other places, and the places that people move to from the closed access cities more than anywhere else are Florida on the east coast, uh, Arizona, Nevada, and inland California on the west coast. So those play I call those areas the contagion cities because really what they, they we basically created a housing drought in the closed access cities, which created a housing refugee event of people looking for an affordable place to live. The people moving into Phoenix when when that market, you know, it, it was, you could legitimately call Phoenix in 2005 a bubble, but the people moving into Phoenix on the margin in those years were moving from Los Angeles, desperately looking for a roof they could put over their head at a reasonable monthly cost. So what happened in Phoenix is they eventually couldn't keep up with the demand of actual families moving into Phoenix that needed a house. So they had a temporary shortage that led to a temporary bubble. But the root cause of that was the long-term shortage in Los Angeles that just when there's any sort of moderate increase in demand, it's going to create a dislocation because they've put a lid on how the city can grow. So the way I kind of think of it in my mind is there's no re- there's no release valve in these major metro coastals. And the price of entry is so steep that it creates a moat around these places, which that pressure has to be relieved somewhere. Yeah. So they end up going to Florida and, and Arizona, Las Vegas, and these other places. Is that an accurate way to kind of think about how this all occurred? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if, if a place can't grow, then the growth has to happen somewhere. So the rest of the country has to always make up for, you know, the lack of supply that happens there. You know, pe- people look at residential investment and it looks like it's somewhat elevated during that time. One of the ironic things, one of the sort of little just tricks of data that, that you have to sort of take account of in this, in this issue is that residential investment, the way the BEA calculates it, happens to include broker commissions for the sale of existing homes. Well, you can sell existing homes all day and night, and that's not going to make a new place for somebody to live. So that really has nothing to do with the expansion of the housing supply. And when you deduct brokers' commissions from residential investment, basically most of what looks like excess in 2005 comes from brokers' commissions. And when you knock that out, residential investment as a portion of GDP has been in a long-term decline going back to the 60s and briefly sort of almost got up to what would have been considered normal, uh, say, before the 1980s. You know, before the 1980s, every, every year, Americans were actually increasing their consumption of housing more each year than their real incomes were, were increasing. In other words, before 1980, the quality, the size, the quality of our houses was getting better each year at a faster rate than our incomes were growing. Since the mid-1980s, that's never been the case. Since the 1980s, we've been growing our real consumption of housing, like the size, quality, and amenities of our houses have been growing at a slower pace than our real incomes have been growing. And that includes the so-called housing bubble period. During the so-called housing bubble, our real consumption of housing was only just barely sort of getting back up to growing at the same rate of our real incomes. And 
that moderate amount of demand bumping up against this closed access issue, that's what caused disruption. So when, when you say they weren't allowing more housing development in these in these major metro coastals, who is who is they? Who are who are the regulatory bodies responsible for you know encouraging or you know allowing developers? Because I assume as a commercial real estate investor myself, there is money to be made in these places, right? There's demand. So how did that dynamic work or how does it work? Yeah, and I suspect it's a much different, I mean, I suspect this is one reason, for instance, the year funds are, are operating in the cities you do and not in Los Angeles, because the, the headache of it, it's a whole different business model, right? It, it's, it's a whole different skill set to, to manage your way through that sort of regulatory regime. It, later, if we talk about mortgage markets, it's sort of a, same, a similar issue there. It's difficult to pinpoint a single factor because there's just this web of regulatory obstruction uh, that, it, you know, it's like sticking your thumb in the dike. Any one thing can't fix it. So, there, you know, at the base of it, there's sort of zoning is an issue. You know, so many cities, uh, a large number of existing units wouldn't even qualify to be built today under the current zoning regulations. So you sort of have this overlay of sort of, uh, you know, sort of freezing these cities in amber by by having this this legislative zoning overlay where you have to go ask for permission to do anything. But, you know, there's just there's there's historical, you know, protections and environmental reviews. And and in places like the California cities and, and New York City and and Boston, you know, there's just. Uh, layer after layer of, you know, sort of open, you know, dialogue with the locals where they where there's just open ended sort of opportunities for them to come and have any reason to object to any uh, project, you know, if nothing else to just, you know, delay it while lawyers fight for four or five years while your money's, you know, while you've got to pay your investors a, you know, 6% return or whatever on it while you're waiting on it. It really is just a dense web of issues, you know, so I sort of think, you know, one of the things that we talk about at the Urbanity Group in Mercatus is that, you know, is to sort of prevent that web from developing in places like Nashville, you know, before they get to the point where they they look like the California cities, like before, before median rents are 3000 a month, let's, let's prevent this from happening, right? So I think there, there is a real difference between those coastal cities and the rest of the country. And it's almost like you have to go to those cities and experience it to 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 really sort of get a feeling for for like how difficult it is to get from I have an idea for a profitable building to 10 years later, building the building half the size you wanted, you know, with a bunch of impact fees and everything else you've negotiated. Yeah, it's, it's you know, very complicated. So that kind of segues into this this next phase of the conversation was this extreme differential between these cities where you have a highly obstructionist, complex, not in my backyard mentality in a place like New York, which has, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, not from the city, but spent a lot of time there. And I mean, overlapping regulatory bodies, I can't even fathom, you know, between the city, the state, local neighborhood, the borough, et cetera, to a place like say Houston or Las Vegas, which is pretty much oh, the wild west in terms of zoning and codes and unregulated. And and so that's part of the story, right? Is is that things were just kind of run roughshod, and that there were winners and losers in the, in this whole dynamic. Yeah, you know, and I think 
it's probably giving giving other cities a little too much credit to to sort of uh, paint them as wild west. I mean, in fact, you, uh, you probably run into this, you know, sing, single family housing. There's a lot of places you can build that and you can sort of like in Phoenix, you can build at the at the edge of the city. But to do an infill commercial project or an infill, you know, multi-unit uh, project, even in cities like that, I think, you know, is... 10, you know, especially if it's in Phil, especially where there's existing residential units, you know, there are, there are, there is still pushback, right? And I think in a lot of ways, those city, those metropolitan areas um, can sort of get around that because people can build on the edge of the city. And in fact, I think that's one of the issues since the crisis is that for other reasons, we've sort of damaged the single family housing market uh, through mortgage markets. And, and we have to get units for people to live in that that would have to be made up in multi-unit housing. And so multi-unit housing has been very, you know, very hot for the last 10 or 15 years, but rents are rising at the, at the low end just about everywhere. And I think partly that's, you know, that's because just about everywhere has some limitation as far as how much multi-unit housing can actually fill the gap. And so I think that's where, you know, I think across the country, we need to make sure we sort of turn the corner and, you know, find ways to make it easier for multi-unit to to be a building choice. One of the, the the most stunning things that I've read here is your assertions. First-time home ownership rates were actually declining at the height of the credit boom, and prices in neighborhoods that seem to have credit booms remain high relative to those in other cities, even though mortgage markets have since become very tight. So, you talk about how the pricing differential within LA itself from, you know, medium neighborhood to a high end neighborhood was actually not that much of a Delta, but when you take that pricing and do it apples to apples to Chicago, pretty dramatic how different it was or is. Yeah. Yeah. There are, it's a bit of a complicated topic and I don't know how much time you'd want me to spend on it. There were, there was a difference in, between the low end and the high end in, and it's really pretty much totally limited to the closed access cities. And I think there are fundamental sort of uh, the easy way that I sort of quickest way to to uh, address that would be to say that just quantitatively, the most effective way to increase the price to rent ratio on a house, paradoxically, is to increase its rent uh, across markets. If you increase the rental value of a house by 10%, the price is bound to increase by more than 10%. Now, there's a there's a, a number of factors we can talk about as to why that happens. But the irony is in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, New York City, the low end was, uh, was sort of catching, their price to rent ratios were sort of catching up with the high end. And that's what ends up creating that uh, differential during that time. In the, most of the rest of the country, even places like like Phoenix or Seattle, where prices did uh, bump up a bit, you don't see that. You, the, the low end and the high end tended to move together in pretty much every city outside those closed access cities. I think mostly because you know the price, the closed access cities, the price levels have just gotten so high that that it's the one sort of time in in the data set where you can see this effect. At the base of it, the problem in those cities is high rents. And so rents had finally gotten high enough and sort of our attitudes about what was going to happen to those rents in the future became 
uh, you know, they're persistently high enough that you can see this happening all over the city. The price to rents are sort of rising to match those expectations. Yeah, in the rest of the country, you just don't see that differential because the closed access cities in terms of price points are just so much higher than the rest of the country. So if it wasn't an oversupply of, or rather, you know, domestic credit, monetary policy, and, and kind of this federal housing push, what did actually occur here to cause this, you know, structural failure in the housing market during the Great Recession? So two things, well, there's two things that uh, you're, I don't know if your readers remember, there was a big giant commission that the, that the federal government put together, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Uh, and they, they wrote this, you know, report that was hundreds of pages long, um, you know, what caused the financial crisis. And, and because it's, you know, the presumption that the crisis was an inevitable result of a bubble, what that book is really about is what caused the bubble. And they have, you know, two dozen reasons, you know, it, the deregulation in, in mortgage markets and speculation in the CDO market and all these things that they talk about. Uh, they spend one paragraph in that report on rents and, and they spend that paragraph to dismiss rents as a, as a reason for high prices. And, and they needed to do that, right? They needed to show that it wasn't fundamentals that was driving the market. And so once you conclude that it's not fundamentals, then you fill up 400 pages worth of all these two dozen things that must have driven us away from fundamentals. But throughout this period, rents were becoming a more and more important factor determining the price level of a given metropolitan area. So the reason, uh, in fact, the, the irony is in the FCIC report, they reference New York City and Los Angeles as two metro areas where price to rent ratios doubled during that time. And, so, and that's, that's what leads to their conclusion that rents were important. Prices had risen so much more than rents that, you know, that we had to explain what caused prices to, to go up so much. Well, Los Angeles, you know, what makes Los Angeles and New York City outliers, what made them outliers is that their rents had gotten so high, right? And their rents had been rising for the 10 years previous to that. It's high rents that made their price to rent ratios go up, which is, you know, it, it, that's a counterintuitive uh, conclusion to, you know, to come to. But systematically, if you look, you know, across metropolitan areas, even at the height of the bubble, Places where price to rent ratios were the highest and where they had risen the most are places where rents were highest and rents had risen the most. Conceptually, we can, we can debate why that's the case, but quantitatively, that just is what happened. Rent really does explain what happened. And so, you know, it, whether those rents were driven higher by high incomes uh, in those cities, you know, it, obviously you can see how that could be the case, especially in like in New York or San Francisco or whatever. But, you know, if you look at that, the official government report on what caused the crisis, they spend a single uh, paragraph on rent to dismiss it, and they don't mention migration at all. Now, rent is what explains high prices in L.A., and migration is what explains the bubble in Phoenix, because all of a sudden, the, you know, their population growth is spiked by like a percent a year because of people moving there to try to find an affordable place to live. Uh, you know, I, one of the ways I sort of talk about the contagion cities, you know, which are sort of the poster children for the bubble, because we, you know, they seem like places that are able to build a lot of houses. So it seemed, you know, how could you have a bubble in Phoenix? What, one way I sort of describe a place like Phoenix is it's sort of like, you know, it sort of based on this, you know, we created a housing drought in California and that created a housing refugee crisis. It's sort of like if a drought killed off all the livestock and there was a boom in rice markets. 
as people are trying to feed their families on whatever's left, right? For for those people moving to Phoenix, and, and I say this as a proud resident of Phoenix, so I, I don't mean this to sound like I'm insulting Phoenix, but for the people that were moving here from LA, we were an inferior good for them, right? A house in Phoenix was an inferior good for them that was a substitute for the house they would have preferred to have in LA if LA had houses. And that just that migration became so overwhelming that it ended up becoming destabilized. Probably some of that was facilitated by these debt markets. Uh, but one of, the, one of the surprising things that you see in the, in the data that, again, is sort of one of those things that you would almost dismiss as an outlier in, unless, you had a, you know, unless you were willing to follow the story, is that in a place like in Arizona, debt per capita didn't really increase in Arizona until after housing starts had peaked and home prices had peaked. Most of the you know, all those, those, the mortgages that defaulted that were originated in 2006 and seven, uh, all of that stuff happened after the peak. Uh, even building rates were declining at pretty strong rates during the period where those mortgages were being originated. And, and other researchers have found the same thing, even in the closed access cities. Surprisingly, in city after city, rising debts is a lagging factor after home prices had increased. So I really think it's just natural demand coming from access to income and all these other things that was the trigger for things that happened. Uh, most of that uh, destabilizing debt was happening, you know, people sort of accessing home equity in, the, in this sort of strange, peculiar market like Phoenix, where by 2007, they're actually, they're actually careening already toward a deep recession because the migration of it has suddenly dried up. And now they're not building houses, you know, population and GDP growth in, in Arizona is suddenly, you know, in a free fall. And that's when a bunch of these loans that ended up going bad get taken out of home equity because they're in this peculiar situation where their economy is collapsing and they happen to have a, an extra 80% of equity in their house because, because of this migration event caused their home prices to go up. So the, the mortgages that defaulted have very little to do with the housing bubble. Right. And that, that was another big takeaway was your statement that it wasn't a credit boom. It was a refugee crisis. Yeah. And I can't help but draw a parallel to the research you did here on the Great Recession and to the narrative that's been occurring over the last 10 years in America, which is, you know, these liberal oriented major coastal markets have become unaffordable even for the affluent. Yeah. So I don't want to ruin the conclusion, but are you saying are you seeing the same fact pattern play out today that you saw looking back during your investigation of the Great Recession? Yes, and I think actually as we go through time, you know, hindsight gets clearer. Uh, now, of course, coronavirus has sort of thrown a whole wrench in the works, and I don't know there's much we can say in, about the last few months until we see how things level out of, after all of this. So, in two thousand four and five the closed access cities actually lost population in absolute numbers because what, what you have, you basically have this haves and have nots situation where, um, you know, people of means who just don't have credit constraints, they can go buy up whatever unit they feel like they want to spend their capital on. And at the lower end of the spectrum, the, you know, people are, are, are accepting longer commutes or, you know, a dozen different ways that they try to deal with rising costs until finally they're the marginal household that leaves town. So their demand is actually determined at the low end is determined by when do you have to leave? Whereas the high end, you know, like in today's, in today's market, the high end, low interest rates, Hey, let's, let's buy a couple units and consolidate them into a single unit. And so I actually think 
to the extent that people at the high end of the market can get access to capital these days, it's actually reducing the carrying capacity of those cities because they're capable of buying up units um, that the that, that people without the means to buy them and, and that are being stretched by rent can't afford. And so without, you know, w- with a mortgage market that's basically closed off to the bottom half of what would have traditionally been the market, we see the same patterns that happened in 2004 and five. We see deep population starting to rise up in those cities, even before Corona virus happened the last year or two population has been leveling off and looking like it's going to decline again in those cities, even without uh, the subprime market and all this stuff that was blamed for the, what, when it happened the first time. So I really do think over time, you know, hindsight keeps throwing more and more doubts on the idea that it was lending to margin, marginal borrowers that had created that. That's so interesting because I see similar parallels in the commercial space where, you know, I know that as a sophisticated borrower who has credit and history, the debt that we can access in the CMBS markets is ridiculously cheap. My cost of capital is so low, but there's, there are very few, I mean, relatively very few groups that have the sophistication or the capacity to access those debt tranches. But I mean, the quotes that I get are five years interest only, 10 years interest only, sub 3% rate, non-recourse. But, you know, it's very difficult to, to tap into that unless you've got the right relationships and understand the mechanisms behind how it all works. And so I just can't help but think that that's that's a similar dynamic happening in the residential space. To your point, mm-hmm. you know, folks in, in New York or San Francisco can, you know, consistently refinance very low equity down, high leverage type of transactions where the majority of the Americans just can't access that type of debt. Yeah. yeah. Now they could before. It's it really, you know, it's been because of a, a, a lot of regulatory reactions to the to the boom that we've made that, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. As you said, the key bubble years, 2004 and five, where home, uh, home ownership was already declining by then. Uh, so most of the, you know, the rise in home ownership was happening, it had been happening since the mid nineties uh, and really age group by age group, home ownership rates weren't any higher than in 2004 when they peaked than they'd been say in the early 1980s. We really weren't outside the historical norm now we're way outside the historical norm today. By age group today, home ownership rates are much lower than they've been any time since pre-crisis, since the night since we started keeping that data in the 1980s. Actually, I have a question for you on this. Uh, in in your line of work, I I'm assuming you have access to cheap debt, but I'm assuming the carrying capacity of that debt doesn't really change that much when interest rates are low for you. The carrying capacity, I assume, comes mostly just from the risk reward of the, of the project itself. And it, would it be true to say that your equity returns for your equity invest for the equity part of your investments are basically as, as, as good as they would have been they, like your equity returns aren't declining the way that your cost of capital with debt declines. Right. I'm not sure I fully understand the question, but I mean, I've been, since I've been investing for 10 years, we've been a persistently low interest rate environment. So, <laughs> oh. you know, Peer to peer, I think we're all kind of playing in the same swimming pool. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but oh. well, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of you know you're you're going to have an equity uh, capital and a debt capital, and 
the returns on equity capital, I assume are still, uh, you know, say your cap rates or whatever, still your equity investors are still expecting as much of a return as they would have expected. Yeah. Years now, ago. now I understand the question, my cost of capital from an equity and a debt perspective. So interestingly, the average investor probably still assumes that I can get the same equity returns that I could five years ago. Uh-huh. But because of the flood of liquidity, I've been having to reorient them and educate them to expect lower yields and lower returns on their equity. Okay, um, even even on the equity side. Yeah, probably by 100 to 300 basis points. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, just because there's such a flood of liquidity that, I mean, for example, we own a lot of office mm-hmm. and office is a very difficult asset class right now. But I can tell you, Cap rates have gone down for office deals since COVID. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, that, yeah, I'll have to think about it. Because look at, if you look at the 10 year and you look at, you know, fixed income is, is negative for a lot of folks. It's just driving down value across the spectrum. So they're moving, they're moving out of fixed income into equity and then sort of driving yields down there is sort of right. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because one, one of the things that to me, uh, I see in the post crisis. Uh, market for homeowners. And, and again, this may have changed because low-end home prices have been catching up over the last few years, is that, you know, there was a period of time from, say, 2008 to 2012, 13, 14, where, where that's, a, you know, effectively, what was, because we made it very difficult to lend to people at the low end, it was actually a market where if you could be a home buyer, uh, debt was very cheap and, and the equity return on a, you know, on a $120,000 home in Cleveland was, you know, through the roof if you could get the mortgage to, to own it. And so we were basically regulating people out of the opportunity to, you know, to be, you know, have this highly asset class that happened to have a very high return and, and it could only be earned by somebody entering into the landlord tenant market instead of the homeowner, you know, owner occupier market. But so, that may have changed too. I suspect that the equity return in those neighborhoods isn't nearly as high as it was 10 years ago, but I'm not sure if it's any lower than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. So I want to learn more about this. So where are we on homeownership on average today versus, you know, historical? Could you give us some perspective? Uh, off the top of my head. So, so the, it had run around 64% up through the mid nineties and that bumped up to 69% by 2004 and then it declined. I think it may have bottomed out in 2014 or 15 or 16 around 62 or 3 percent. And it's uh, the numbers, just the survey in the coronavirus period of the surveys are, are, are out of whack. So we really don't have good data uh, from the big, since the beginning of 2020. But there was some signs of a little bit of recovery, uh, especially among the lower age groups in 2018 and 2019. But we're still probably around 63-ish, 64. And actually, so that, you know, where you see this figure looked level for so many years and then bumped up 5% and then bumped down 6 or 7%. And now it's sort of back close to that 64. That really, that's another one of these sort of ironic data points that you see, you, you know, you can find a, a thousand articles where people will talk about it as if, oh, we went along as normal all these years at 64%. And then 
5% of the American population that shouldn't have been homeowners was given mortgages that they weren't qualified for. And so that temporarily bumped us up to 69. And now we can obviously see that that was unsustainable because it went right back. You know, once we got rid of those terrible markets, it went back to 63 or 64%. And that seems to tell a very easy story. So much of that growth was due to the baby boomer dynamic. Uh, you know, if you, if you separate out home ownership by age group, uh, it was it was actually pretty level, uh, you know, it sort of declined slightly. There's sort of a long-term range within every age group of a couple percent up and down from from sort of a long-term average since since they began keeping data. And they had sort of gone to the bottom of that range by the mid-90s and sort of were tickling the top of the range in the, in the mid-2000s, but it was never outside of that normal range if once you adjust for age, partly why uh, home ownership rates are 69% is because home ownership rates for baby boomers, you know, for anybody in that age group and the older age groups is more like 80% or, you know, uh, among uh, say, you know, uh, uh, white households is I think is closer to 90% when you're at that age group. So, you know, home ownership, there's a natural just life cycle process that most, almost everybody ends up owning a home by the time they retire. And so really the difference between 69% then and 64% in the late 80s or something was all demographics. Now there's a little bit of cyclical movement going on there, but we overinterpreted everything as cyclical and we just took a, you know, a battering ram to the, to the, uh, to the shins of the mortgage market to try to correct this supposed imbalance. And really what we did you know, in the in the older age groups that hadn't shifted by more than a couple percent in home ownership for decades, you know, they, they went down five percent or more and they're still way down. So it really was mostly a one way street uh, from, a, you know, there was a, a fairly normal mortgage market up till, you know, 2003 or four. Uh, there was a subprime uh, market, which really was wasn't so much about borrower characteristics as it was about giving friendlier terms to qualified borrowers or to non-conventional borrowers. So it actually shifted the market away from, you know, in, instead of the, the, the custodian, you know, the 50 year old custodian um, who saved up for a down payment and wants to buy a $130,000 house in Omaha, by then that's not happening. What's happening is he's getting outbid by the, you know, the young professional who's buying a second home for an investment or, you know, speculators and all those other things. That's really what was being fed by the subprime market because it was giving them better terms. The, the idea that it was, uh, that it was mostly, you know, that anyone with a pulse could get a mortgage has, has, you know, vastly overstated how much of that was due to borrower characteristics. So in the end, what we ended up doing is trying to fix, a, uh, you know, trying to regulate the market through borrower characteristics when that was really never, the crux of the problem. So we sort of solved it. We had a problem of mortgages that were systemically unstable and that had terms that were probably, you know, creating, you know, creating that part of that issue. And that some of those problems needed to be, to be solved. We ended up trying to solve a borrower characteristics problem that really was never a big issue. And so you really get three uh, regimes in, in the mortgage markets. You get the pre-2005 regime, which is really just conventional mortgages uh, you know, giving, you know, allowing an aging population to express their home ownership as they had been more or less for decades. Then this brief period of time where it shifts to an investor and speculator market with with destabilizing terms that, that collapses 
you know, very suddenly in 2007 and really demands a, a policy response that's stimulative immediately to counteract that. And instead of doing that, we basically made it illegal to make a conventional mortgage to a household with a 720 FICO score who would have been who would have gotten a perfectly stable mortgage any time in the previous 30 or 40 years without any problem. And actually that late development in 2008 and after where we put fetters on the conventional mortgage market, much of the damage of the crisis comes from that late policy decision specifically, you know, to to hamstring mortgage markets. In fact, one of the ironies, I think, is that there's this whole we saved Wall Street, not Main Street quip about the crisis. Well, how did we bail out Wall Street? We bailed out Wall Street by making loans to them at terms and, 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 you know, at terms that would have been normal at any time before the crisis. You know, we sort of overruled the crisis and allowed Wall Street firms to, to, to take on debt that they had to then repay, right? And that's what we call the Wall Street bailout. Well, what we really needed was a Main Street bailout, which was the exact same thing. Make mortgages to households on the terms and conditions that they would have been getting them for 30 or 40 years beforehand. And nobody wanted that. That's the least popular thing you could have possibly asked for in, in late 2008. That's actually what caused the crisis. That's actually what made Wall Street collapse was that everyone, the, the universal consensus was, oh, you can't, that's the one thing we can't do. Nobody wanted the actual, you know, if, the, if a bailout is making loans to, to people overruling the crisis, nobody wanted a Main Street bailout. Right. And that's where I remember reading recently in The New Yorker that homeownership amongst Black Americans is the lowest since the 60s. Yeah. And they talked about, in particular, Los Angeles, where the lack of supply and the ability for investors to access cheap debt and, and cheap cost of capital were just buying up all the products. So there was, there was this historical you know, supply of, of homes for this population is simply were no longer available. They were all investment rental properties and there's just nowhere for them to go now. Yeah. And we've made it, you know, if you think about all, you know, the, the ability re to repay rule and all these boxes that the a mortgage originator has to check off today. I really think uh, in terms of, of like dealing with institutional racism in mortgage markets and, and all that, you know, we really have, you know, there's a lack of trust that people have about the financial sector. And, and there's a lot of sort of paradoxical ways that people think, you know, that they can't, they, they can't decide if it's, if a mortgage is a good thing or a bad thing, right? Is it predatory or is it access to capital, right? And we get these sort of, you know, incoherent sort of reactions to like, what do you want the banker to do? Do you want the banker to make uh, mortgages to minorities or do you not want them to make mortgages to minorities? And to me, the, the, you know, this box ticking, oh, the banker has to meet all these you know, like, you know, there's no bending room here. There's no room for discretion. You got to check all these boxes. And if they don't get checked, you have to decline that mortgage. Or there's all these vague liabilities that are going to be put down on you as the mortgage originator. You know, that's, that's exactly the way to keep people in marginalized uh, populations from getting access to capital, right? What you really need to, to try to uh, defeat these historic inequities is bankers that can use their discretion 
to, to make room for somebody that doesn't have parents that can co-sign their loan, that doesn't have a history of family money to back them up, right? Well, those boxes you're checking on the, you know, the, the form that you get from the CFPB or the FHFA or whatever today, they don't, they don't give you that, right? So I really think uh, we've taken a huge step back We've blamed the bubble for it. You know, the idea that this was all inevitable means we can just blame the bubble for it. And we can still pretend, oh, it was this predatory lending. And that unwinding that is what has uh, collapsed homeownership rates. But, you know, if you don't have a family history of wealth, try to go get a mortgage today. If you're, you know, if your FICO score is not 800 points. So we really need to come to terms as a, as a country, you know, like what do we want bankers to do, right? <laughs> And I, you know, I, to me, that, that's sort of one of the themes I touch on again and again and again is first we, you know, it's it, access, access is just so key in every way. First, there's access in terms of like, if you want to build a house in the LA region, it has to be legal for you to do that. We need to find a way to, for you to actually physically live there. And then there's also access on the funding side. And if you have access in both cases, in a, you know, in 2005, if you, if you don't have access to location, you get Los Angeles. But if you have access to both location and credit, you get Texas. And Texas didn't have a boom and bust. Texas was perfectly, a perfectly moderate, you know, slight, maybe slightly increased default rates during the boom, but nothing that was like crisis uh, uh, creating. Access in all areas gives you Texas. It doesn't give you a boom and a bust. And so today we've actually gone the opposite direction. Now there's no access in terms of location in those places. Now there's a lack of access in terms of funding everywhere that's enforced from the federal level. So we're, we're hitting the hour mark. <laughs> this has been really interesting. And I'm going to ask you an unfair question. How do we fix this? Um, <laughs> this seems to be a persistent issue really probably since, and you're the expert, but it, it seems like the 50s or the 60s that you know, cost of housing and housing shortage has been a problem. It's, it's, it's in part, obviously, was, was the issue with the Great Recession. And it seems like history is repeating itself. I, I hear a lot of my New York friends talk about how the city really needed a price adjustment and a price reset. And they're happy to have some people leave and go to Florida and these other markets because now it can be affordable and accessible to younger people who can bring some energy and creativity to the market are we just bound and determined to continue on this cycle or is there a way that we can, we can change the narrative and, and, and avoid this moving forward? I, I do think there's a real, I mean, probably on every facet of these issues, there's a real deep cultural shift. You know, the, the, what I would say are the wrong presumptions about what created the bubble are so deeply felt it probably you probably almost do have to describe the change that's going to have to happen as a cultural, deep cultural shift, because you just see time and again, people's reactions to things happening in the housing market are all based on a fear of supply is fear of excess. And, but, you know, more than ever, rising prices are due to rising rents. And especially, you know, we really have this haves and have nots uh, market now, where if you're at the low end of the market and you're stuck in a renter's market, uh, it doesn't matter what sort of uh, zoning policies your city has, your, your rents have been rationing up for the past decade because people like you can't get a mortgage to create marginal supplies, you know, in, in the entry level. Just to throw out a couple of stats, the, the, the stats on this stuff are just just staggering. So uh, the, the New York Federal Reserve uh, tracks mortgage originations by FICO score uh, or by credit score. And since, uh, since the 2000, 
uh, five, you know, the pre-crisis period, lending to FICO scores between 720 and 760 is down something like 75%. Those are above average FICO scores. For FICO scores above 760, mortgage originations are double what they were pre-crisis. So, you know, the people that have access to credit sure think that housing market, there's no reason not to get some mortgages, right? I mean, it, that's- yeah, I mean, refinancings I mean, are at like an all-time high. I mean, I, we're like, I'll just put it out there. We're, we're affluent. We have resources. We have a 10-year interest only 2.8% mortgage that has an automatic readjustment for like a one-time fee every 200 bips. We've readjusted, I think, twice. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And so you can see it's this real haves and have not things because you can get that because you have. In fact, I think an argument can be made that yields are so low, partly because savings is out there looking for outlets. And we've literally made it illegal for there to be an outlet for millions of households that would like to take equity out of their house in a reasonable, affordable way. You know, trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars of actual structures that should have been built over the last decade and trillions other dollars of, of debt funding for existing and new homes. Uh, you know, at some point, at some number of trillions, you're probably going to have an effect on the, on the interest rate side of it. So anyway, the, you know, and, and other things like, like uh, the sale of new homes under $200,000, uh, for instance, is down. Uh, eight, something like 85% since pre-crisis. It, every year before, say, 2006, we were building more than a half a million houses at price points below 200,000. And that, that is down to like 70,000 a year. So we've really, we have made it illegal to build an affordable house. We've made affordable housing illegal. And we've made it, but it's legal to do whatever you want in housing if affordability is not an issue for you. <laughs> so anyway, that's sort of the scale of what we've created. You know, tactically, that problem would be very easy to, to solve to me. You know, I, I don't mind, you know, if, if we want to be very careful about allowing the sort of mortgage products that were available in 2005 to, to rear their heads again, that's fine. I mean, I think some of that is debatable, like how important they were in creating the bubble um, they certainly were. I wouldn't deny that they were important in creating the crisis because once those products developed, even if they weren't that important as a factor that drove up prices over the long term, they did become important in terms of destabilizing once we created a crisis. Completely unrelated to that, we've made mortgage lending to the bottom half of the traditional market basically illegal. That's very, you know, basically get rid of the ability to repay rule, you know, have Fannie and Freddie and the FHA go back to their lending standards from, you know, uh, their pre-2000, pick a year, 2003, 1999, 1995, any of it would be much more generous than what they're able to do today. And immediately you would have a supply response. And the irony is that, you know, there's a lot of focus on loose lending leading to sort of inflationary consumption during the bubble. But it was actually bringing down rents. In fact, briefly in 2005 was really the, the closest we've gotten in 25 years to, to neutral housing and monetary policy. Briefly in 2005, both rent inflation and inflation of other goods and services was about 2% because we were finally actually allowing housing to expand at a, at a moderate rate that was, that was increasing real consumption of housing at a rate that was allowing rents to moderate. So cities like Atlanta and Dallas, rents were actually very, you know, 
the hot housing market was doing what it's supposed to do in those cities during those years. It was bringing down rents. But because we can't build houses in New York City and LA and San Francisco, rents continue to be high no matter, you know, because you can't, there can't be a supply response there. Sorry, I'm going on and on and on, but, you know, it would be very simple. Just let people borrow again that have borrowed for decades. That's politically very difficult because as soon as you, there's so many people that are benchmarking their sense of norms to 2012 that any sort of, uh, any sort of expansion of that market they see as dangerous. So I think it'll take a huge cultural shift for people to accept it. But tactically, it's very simple. Just make these things legal again. Now, for the closed access cities, it's a much more difficult uh, problem to solve because, as we discussed earlier, it's just this web of inter, you know, interrelated, you know, ways to obstruct local building. And I think we've actually seen some nice movement. You know, a lot of states and a lot of regions have been passing, you know, uh, say making single family housing zoning illegal, you know, making it so you can build multi-unit throughout the city instead of in these very restic- restricted zones. Uh, they're doing a lot. They're trying to do a lot at the state level in California to sort of over, you know, overrule the local air, uh, municipalities in terms of all these rules. That's just a long-term slog of just reversing this, uh, you know, reversing this this pattern that's developed over, you know, the better part of a century, really. Uh, you know, the, the early zoning rules went in in the early 20th century and they've just been, you know, it's all been ratcheting up and ratcheting up. That's a long-term slog. So it may be a while before we increase housing at a moderate rate in a place like LA, but it, it really, you know, it, in the rest of the country, bringing down rents and giving people access to capital is really simply a matter of making it legal again. And, and mostly it's just regulations that have been put in place in 2007 that could, I, to me, could largely just be reversed and, you know, let's go, let's go back to the 90s, you know, what we had in place in, say, the 90s, and, and we can talk step by step about what maybe should be kept. But I think very little of what we have needs to be kept in order for that to, you know, th- there's no reason why that sort of lending would be destabilizing. It wasn't destabilizing in three quarters of the country, <laughs> even in 2005. Complicated issue. <laughs> what, what's that? Complicated issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin, thank you so much for the time. There's a lot to dig into here, but really interesting take on, on, you know, the narrative that we've all been kind of fed and the work you're doing is impressive. How can people, if they want to find out more about the work that you're doing at Mercatus or just connect with you in general to learn more about your research, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Uh, probably, I you know, I have a scholar page at the Mercatus website, so I suppose we could probably put a link up to that that would have all my sort of official um, Mercatus um, uh, output. Uh, you know, shut out is, you know, is is a uh, in-depth introduction to the evidence. I'll have, a like I said, a book hopefully out this year that'll, that'll sort of go into more details about the, I, what I would refer to as the moral panic of what we were doing to ourselves in 2007, 8, and 9. And yeah, so I, I can give you a couple of links if you want, to, if you want to put them on, on with the, uh, yeah, we'll put them on with the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah. There's a couple, there's a couple, there's probably one, I have a short piece. It's a very nice sort of short introduction to the general story. That's an old Mercatus paper I have. And, and so we'll send you a couple. Kevin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and, uh, really impressive work. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. 
Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.